All right. If you missed it last week or you heard it and then promptly forgot, we've launched a Patreon. Uh, thank you very much to those of you who have already become patrons. Your stickers, socks, magnets, etc. are already flying your way or will be very soon. And Lily? And if you don't know what the heck a Patreon is, it's just, <laughs> <laughs> it's just a website that makes it easy for people to support their favorite content creators. So <clears throat> if we, sir are one of your favorite content creators, maybe like in the top 100 or something, favorite. You listen to the show, you like what you hear, please consider supporting us by becoming a patron. It means you say thank you to us once a month with your wallets. Yes, and as a thank you for doing so, we have some tantalizing bonuses we shall send to you, as I mentioned. So go on and head over to patreon.com slash she's in Russia. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And now to the show. Hi, I was wondering if you guys have any recommendations for Russian language podcasts for someone who's learning Russian Maybe something like your podcast with two people speaking not too quickly, um, but entirely in Russian uh, so that, um, you know, it's it's just the language and I can listen to the language and listen to the sounds. Uh, great. Thanks so much. So what do you got for her? Hello, dear. What's her name? She didn't say her name. Okay. Hello, nameless podcast seeker. I'm going to name three Russian podcasts that I have listened to a little bit of. The ones I listen to the most are Medusa. Medusa has a series of podcasts. The ones I like listen to the most often and I think would be the best for your purposes are Medusa v Kursi. What does that mean? Medusa v Kursi. It's like Medusa's in the know. Okay. And Dela Slutri, which means like something that happened. I don't know. It's hard. I don't know how to translate that. I'm too tired. Um, <laughs> the case of something that happened anyway Dela Suche in Medusa Kursi Medusa Kursi I think is like a is a weekly sort of newsy one and Dela Suche is more like moralistic or ethical they like discuss ethical questions but both of them have a couple of people on them and so it's a conversation it's more curated than ours like definitely but it's still like pretty informal but they are journalists so it has that journalistic vibe especially the news one so yeah check out Medusa's series of podcasts. We'll, we'll link to them in the description. Yeah. Then the second one I would recommend is this podcast. It's an online radio called glagolev.fm. Glagolev. It's a combination of music and then sort of like stories on random topics and reading of text. So it's actually like a lot of different types of audio. I've listened to it a bit and it's like really pleasant and interesting and enjoyable and it kind of has that like radio story feel where like the different sounds and voices like I heard for example one about a story about Russian stairwells and another about like different bird languages so it's just you know fun little mix right after this we'll listen to a short clip from that podcast but first I'm going to introduce the third one third one it, I actually came across when I was researching your question because podcasts aren't like super super popular in russian and except for medusa i don't really know any like mainstream ones but this is called arzamas it's actually the audio from different 
university level courses that are being taught on a variety of subjects in Russia. So it's like lectures from Russian professors and researchers at the university level on various humanitarian topics, anthropology, history, literature, linguistics. Um, and it looks like that website has other interesting like ways to consume these classes and courses other than audio, but the audio is for you. Perfecto. All right. So you want to introduce listening? Just to give you a little taste, let's listen to a two-minute segment from one of the episodes from glagolev.fm. FM. <laughs> FM. <laughs> Вот, это типичная история, достаточно интернациональная. Здесь, здесь мы видим преследование главного героя каким-то непонятным существом, с которым он не знает, как совладать, и природы, которую зачастую неизвестно. Часто в российских историях все, все происходит в подъезде из-за того, что подъезд для нас — это такая зона отчуждения, это и не снаружи, и не внутри — Никто не, не воспринимает его как свою территорию, но вместе с тем это не совсем чужая. И таким образом вот этот вот непонятный статус э, позволяет воспринимать его как что-то как что-то потустороннее. Yeah, 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 From St. Petersburg and Brooklyn, this is She's in Russia. I'm Smith. And I'm Lily. So what's today's episode, Lily? Lilette. What are we doing? Today we are extremely lucky to be able to speak with Katerina Novikova, who is the head of the press office at the Bolshoi Theater. So if you don't know what the Bolshoi Theater is in Moscow, you better... Keep your seatbelt on. <laughs> Keep your seatbelt on. Your hair, hair plugs, ear plugs. You're plugged in. <laughs> you're in for a big ride. No, I mean you're gonna. You should just keep listening to this episode because you will get a very good idea of what the Bolshoi is historically, what its significance is, why it's so important in Russian history and culture. So I understand that you are from like a theatrical background and I, wa I wanted to ask um, about your upbringing and, and sort of how or why you ended up in the world of the theater as you are now. Right. Well, I, I started up in the world of the theater as I was born in the family of people, both of whom are tightly related with the theater. And by now, my father is artistic director of one of the big drama theater in St. Petersburg, Komisarzewskaya Theater. And when I was born, he was there like um, dramaturg in the, in the same company. My father is very, very loyal. Basically, all his life, he's just in one company. And my mother's um, stepfather, he was a theater critic. And actually, he was a teacher of my father. So in between of them, I am like third generation from the same 
education and same background. And my father is a very open man. And so that even we lived in my childhood in a communal apartment, which to many Americans, I guess, is something unbelievable because it means that several families shared one apartment with one bathroom and toilet. And my family had there just two rooms. But these two rooms, they always were open and they were on the ground level. And sometimes people would have climbed through the window inside <gasps> and actually very often. Oh my God. And very, very often we had like, I don't know, I don't remember one evening without guests in our house. And all these guests, they were actors and artists and ballet dancers. And my parents, their close friend with Borishnikov and with Timur Khanov. And uh, my um, god stepfather, he was a solo dance in Marinsky Theater. So basically, I just was born in this kind of the world. And quite early in my life, I understood that these friends of my parents, they're much more vivid, interesting, alive, bright, amazing people than anybody else who does some sort of any other activity. I remember I used to go with my, my paternal grandfather parents to some special resort house or with writers or composers and that was quite a different world they all would have been how to say in their inner world theater <laughs> mm. people they're so talkative it's such a fun to be around and of course from my childhood my father was bringing me every sunday to some it was his um, his duty to me as his daughter. So every Sunday he had to bring me in the swimming pool in the morning and then some theater production in the afternoon. <sighs> so of course, he introduced me to this world uh, very early in my life. And I always was interested in all kinds of arts. I mean, I was graduating also from fine arts school and I loved literature, but especially theater. And um, when, uh, when I was ending up my school, I was kind of thinking to go to the journalist faculty. And then my father came and he said, but why journalism? You don't want to write about cocos or about industry, right? If you would like to write something, it would be about arts. I said, yes. And then he said, in this case, you should go to the Theatre Institute where your grandfather was teaching and from which I graduated. And I said, yes, Dad, but if I go there, everybody would know I'm your daughter and I'm his granddaughter. <laughs> and so it's unfair. And he said, look, if you're going to go and do military engineer, I still as a father will fight for you so that you would be accepted there, right? So you better choose what you want to do in your life and do what you want to do in your life without thinking too much what people think about you. And I'm ever grateful for him for this advice. Because very quick in my institute, it was obvious who is capable of, of what, who is capable to speak, to write, to teach, and who is not capable, doesn't matter from which background you come. And main lesson to me in my life is that the best thing one can do in his life is listen to his inner world and do what he likes to do. It's the only way you can live your life in a satisfactory way. Well, and then just to say shortly how I came to Bolshoi, I came first as a translator to Marinsky Theatre. I was translating to one English director, Tony Palmer, who was staging um, Parsifal. And it was just by chance I came, just because I'm very talkative and I speak quickly and I can do <laughs> simultaneous translation. And he sort of grabbed me and he said, I need you for the rehearsal. And so I did this. And then I went to Japan for nine months to learn Japanese. And when I returned... I, I'm very proud of this. I got a phone call from Maestro Gergiev personally. And he said, you know, we are organizing press department in Marinsky. They never had it. In Soviet Union, no one needs press department. And he knew me just 
I mean, as who I'm, who I am, and as this translator, of course, and of course he knew my family anyway. So he said, we thought maybe you would like to work as a press secretary. And I mean, I was so flattered, and as I was very young, I was not even afraid as much as one could have been. So, so I took this challenge, and I'm ever first uh, press secretary of Marinsky Theater, which I'm very proud of. And my real school was there for three seasons. And then after these three seasons, uh, I decided that I did all I could in frame of the structure of this company. And I moved to St. Petersburg Philharmonic as a deputy director to work with Maestro Timirkanov. But there, very quickly, I realized that Philharmonic and theater, it's not the same. Both arts, but not the same at all. Musicians, they come and go. They just come for the rehearsals and they go and they return for the concerts. And they don't have any inner life of their organization, not like theater. And, um, and I was quite unhappy. I'm happy in there. And then all of a sudden I got this proposal from Bolshoi. And I wasn't sure because I didn't never want to move to Moscow. I'm uh, from St. Petersburg and I love this city deeply and all my family, all my love was there. But I decided I will just go to Bolshoi. And I came to Bolshoi and I went through all this amazing building. And in a certain moment, we are coming on the stage with this sort of dim light. I remember telling it already somewhere. But anyway, it was a very, very special moment in my life. Because I come from the wings. Auditorium is empty. We have only this side dim light. And this Bolshoi chandelier has no light but just sort of sparkling in the darkness. And I stay on this stage. And I think to myself, well, I, I cannot go away from this place. <laughs> it's just like, it's not possible. And I took this, um, this job proposal right away, even that for the first half of the year, all my salary, I had to pay for the rent of tiny, tiny apartment in Moscow, <laughs> which I had. <laughs> so I had zero as revenue. But I, just, mm. I just couldn't go away wow. from it. And and now you've been there like seventeen years, yeah. Mm, yeah, I mean it's not it's not good because people can think I'm young. Yes, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. You'll be there only a short while. <laughs> we will we'll we'll cut that out. You've just been there. <laughs> it doesn't matter. All twenty first century. Yes, yes. It's I'm really, proud of this. It's really amazing that you were. The, I mean, I read that you were the first. Um, first press secretary of the Rinsky, and that's just incredible. I like. Do you think you could? To give like one little anecdote about like the everyday experience of that, just like having a job that no one's had. In, in Mariinsky, when I just got this job and I was the very first one and I had to learn it on my way, when in half a year time I could hire my assistant and she now lives in London, Marina Stager. I was so happy to have her, but I couldn't imagine how ever I could do it alone. Yeah. That's something I cannot take, <laughs> I cannot understand. Because even two of us, we were running like, I don't know, like elect electric cleaners, I, <laughs> all from morning to the evening. And especially life in Marinsky is so intensive. And Gergiev, he was, I don't know how is he is now, because of course he's changing through these years. But at the time I was there, all his main decisions, they were very impulsive. So you had to react on the spot. But of course, on the other hand, St. Petersburg and Moscow, it's, it's not the same in size of press, of course. But the biggest thing I ever had in Marinsky was the one Mr. Putin, who at that time didn't even have the position of president, but was just, in Russian they say EO, somebody who executes 
uh, the duty of presidencies, mm. uh, исполняющие обязанности, someone who executes the duty, right, of Russian president, and he decided to meet Mr. Blair, and then Mr. Konchilovsky, who was doing the war and peace premiere, he thought, and uh, because he had some connections, I guess, in the government, he thought it would be great for the publicity, but it's, he thought that it would be also really great for these two men to meet, to come for the premiere, to meet in the theater. And I think that by that time in Leningrad, in St. Petersburg, for years and years and years, I don't know, maybe after Stalin time, no one was ever coming on this kind of level to meet on the premiere. It was such a huge event. And we got all this list of press and we got all these 20, I don't know, five cameras, the special bus. I never saw so many press together. And actually, Mr. Blair and Mr. Putin and uh, all the government had to be there. They had, they've been in all these boxes. And, you know, why and peace? It's like four hours peace. <laughs> of Prokofiev music, I guess, to numbers of people there, it was a real art torture. But what could they say? <laughs> well. Yes, and after, after this, I understood kind of scale that press might have. Because, of course, in St. Petersburg at that time, we have maybe four. TV channels, but I never had this 25 cameras. Now in Bolshoi, it became my routine through those years. But uh, there in St. Petersburg, it was something absolutely outstanding. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of curious about that on almost a larger scale, just the general idea of the Bolshoi as a center of culture in various stages of Russian history. Could you kind of talk about that, like uh, pre-Soviet, Soviet, and now? Uh, actually... The, the thing of Bolshoi is this is outstanding venue because it was it's a third building on the same foundation. It was constructed by Alberto Cavos, who was a son of royal composer Katarina Cavos, and who was an outstanding architect. He he built up two company two theater buildings mainly famous in Russia. One is Marinsky and one is Bolshoi. And Bolshoi was first one he did, and he was very much preoccupied with acoustic, but also. His father was from Venice, and they said that in the Bolshoi decor, in this white and gold, you have all this Venice reflection. But the thing is that he built up in Moscow, even that capital was in St. Petersburg, Moscow still was the biggest city of the country. And in this biggest city of the country, he built a venue of such an incredible beauty, of outstanding quality. And from the time he built it up, he was very much in a hurry because he had to build it up for the coronation of Alexander II, as Nicholas I passed away, and um, uh, religious church, Orthodox church headquarters, they stayed in Moscow always. So the uh, coronation itself was in an Assumption Cathedral, but in the evening, the major celebration took place in Bolshoi. I'm saying it just to stress that from the beginning, Bolshoi was popular not just for the artistic events, but for the historical events, important for the nations, like this celebration. And then they celebrated the coronation of Alexander III and coronation of Nicholas II. And um, all the artistic forces, mainly, they were in St. Petersburg. But of course, for the coronation evening, always special performance would be staged, and all of the best dancers and singers would have come to be that evening on the Bolshoi stage. But after revolution, and it was a huge quarrel whether the new, peop new uh, country needs this kind of art, or it's too bourgeois. But of course, uh, at the end of the day, we are happy and thankful to Mr. Lunacharsky, who was um, uh, ahead of uh, what we 
equal today of the Minister of Culture, that, uh, that was preserved, the art of ballet and opera. But Bolshoi, right away, when Capital moved to Moscow, became a very important uh, venue because all the major party meetings all that also took place there. It's from the Bolshoi stage that the Soviet Union was announced, its creation of new country. Whoa. It was announced on that stage, or the death of Lenin was announced at that stage, or the first uh, five-year plans of the country development, or the electricity plan. And of course, apart from this in Soviet Union, which was a very closed country, Bolshoi became very quickly the very prime place. I mean, you couldn't imagine any better theater you could have worked in than Bolshoi. So all talents from all these 15 republics, they were trying to be in Bolshoi. Bolshoi was top of the top. Nowadays, the world is open, and some people really would prefer just to travel around, and it's not, it's not the same. But Bolshoi was a very privileged place. First of all, it was the biggest venue, the most important. In 20th century, 140 leaders of different countries visited Bolshoi because it was part of the official program. Mm. Everybody visiting Soviet Union, it was a must to come to Bolshoi. That's why it's such a historical place. Because on one hand, on stage, you had numbers of outstanding talents. And of course, in 20th century, especially... Uh, like amazing singers like Sobinova, Nizhdanova, or Buchova, or later on, Abrasova, Atlantov, Milashkina, Sinyaskaya, etc., etc., and also dancers. And with Grigorovich, the whole new era of uh, Soviet ballet, Russian ballet, but much more than that, because pieces like Spartacus will stay, I guess, forever in the history of ballet. And all this amazing generation which came together, like Vasiliev and Maximova, and Plisetska and Bismirtnova, great numbers of outstanding artists on one side, and on the other side, all these leaders of all these countries, you know, Kennedy and Makatma Gandhi and Elizabeth II, and everybody in the history, they, they used to come to this place. Like, first, I'm going to ask a question, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you definitely know better than I do. Um, <laughs> the question is, so in general, like, Russian ballet right now that's being performed in the main theaters of the country is like pretty classical, like Swan Lake, etc. Is there a reason that the Bolshoi, for example, the Bolshoi, because you're from the Bolshoi, isn't doing like their own ballet choreography that is more modern ballet? So like not like more contemporary, not, not something that they bring in from the outside, from another choreographer, but the, the core company? Well, I, I think it's, uh, I don't know, too long would be my answer. So first of all, there is a classical ballet. There is the school of classical ballet, and the school was brought to Russia, and it was brought to Russia by uh, different people. By So it's a mixture what we have now as a classical ballet, because it brought from Italian people and from French people and from Swedish people as one of the best teacher of ballet was Mr. Jagansson, who was from Sweden. But uh, nowadays, what we see worldwide, I'm saying it because this year, the whole world is celebrating 200th anniversary of Marius Pitipa, an outstanding French choreographer who spent 60 years in Russia and who worked in Russian Imperial Theater, mostly in St. Petersburg, but also in Moscow. But the thing is that Every summer he would have traveled to France and he would look all the new things there and he would stage his own works and um, he would copy and bring back to our stage some other ballads, like, for example, Capelia, which was staged by uh, Saint-Léon in the beginning, or Corsair, 
from Mazilia, but he would have brought it back to Russia and he would add something to this. But the thing is that nowadays, the whole classical repertoire we know worldwide, even Giselle, all of the version we know worldwide, more or less, they're the version we do know through Petipa and through his version. Because by the time when Diaghilev came to Paris, all this tradition in Paris already evaporated. Diaghilev brought the Giselle. Giselle was, it was created in Paris, but it was forgotten by that time. The only great discovery later on happened through the Bournonville uh, choreography, but where he preserved classic as well. So nowadays, Don Quixote, Raimonda, or for example, Swan Lake, or especially, of course, Sleeping Beauty and Nutcracker, both of this ballet, they appeared and Tchaikovsky wrote the score basically together with Petipa. So basically the whole classical heritage, the way we know it now, comes somehow from my country, in a sense. Because, of course, it's like it was traveling, you know, I cannot discuss in this short in the short answer, all of that. But what we do know by now, mostly, it what was preserved through the Petipa eyes and through his version and through his choreography. So hardly one can name any ballet title which wasn't touched by Petipa nowadays. So, and in that, in that sense, it's our great, great duty to preserve it all. Because when we speak about classical ballet, let's say like Bayadere, which Petipa staged in St. Petersburg at 1877. In the last act of Bayadere, in the beginning he had 64 shadows. Now we have, uh, uh, we have half of it. So, but for these shadows, you need to have more than 30 girls in perfect shapes. Of course, in the gala concert, you can always have a couple of outstanding dancers. But if you have to perform a classical ballet, or like Capella, which we are doing those days and will be showing in direct transmission, you need to have dancers who can do character dance and who can do perfect classical dance and all in the same style. So only big company, well elevated, well uh, educated, with their own school can do it. Not so many companies in the world can show you perfect Swan Lake. You can count it on the fingers of one hand, frankly speaking. So, of course, companies like Bolshoi, like Mariinsky, like Paris Opera, like La Scala, like Covent Garden, it's our duty. Because if not us, no one else in the world can show it in a perfect way. Because we all need to be to be paid by the state or by some other, let's say, resources, but who can support this kind of big companies? And we need traditions for this. You cannot come out of the blue, bring some good people from all different companies, and they will perform for you. You have to have a unification in your style. And you really need these years of classical training. And what Roland Petit, who is, of course, a modern and one of most outstanding French choreographers, after these 10 years of school, when you learn this classical ballet, why not to use it? Why to spend these 10 years if after this you just move absolutely only to the modern thing? Then you don't need the school. Without this big classical ballet, you don't need the school. You need the school, first of all, to perform this kind of work. But of course, if you have this 10 classical ballets, I mean, how many classical ballets we have? It's very limited repertoire. Mm. And you cannot rely only on this. And every company has to develop. And then it's always a question of balance. It's a question of balance. And of course, every company and every dancer is remembered in their new roles. If you are Giselle number 27 in the ballet history, you might be outstanding and people, of course, will remember you. But if 
you are, let's say, the very first performer of Bright Stream by Alexei Radmansky, it's different. Then you always is written in the history as the very, very first performer. And, uh, of course, if you're doing your premiere of Balenuriev in Bolshoi, you mark another page in the history, you know. Or if you're dancing Spartacus by Yuri Grigorovich on the opening night, Vladimir Vasiliev always will stay as a first Spartacus. Mm. So you have to have new repertoire. But doing new repertoire, you also, I mean, Bolshoi, what we are interested in and what we are trying to do every season, we're trying to show at least one creation, which is done just for us. And we are happy in the sense, because in 20th century, we had Yuri Grigorovich, who created numbers of new work just for the Bolshoi. And now, every year, we are trying to do something new. So in our repertoire in 21st century, thanks to Alexei Ratmansky, we had numbers of ballet created just for us, which was like Bright Stream and Bolt and Flame of Paris and uh, Lost Illusion. We also were thankful to uh, Sergei Filin to convince Jean-Christophe Maillot, who always is staging only for his own company in Monte Carlo. But first time in his life, he did, and he did a creation of Tempting of the Shoe, and he did it for Bolshoi. So all of a sudden, Katerina Krasanova got a, got a perfect role and now Kirill Siriabrikov with Yuri Posokhov, they did together Lermontov story, Hero of Now Time, and uh, Nureyev. And Yuri Posokhov once upon a time staged for us Cinderella. So on and on, we're always trying to have something created just for us, something new, just for our repertoire. And at the same time, of course, we need to dance great contemporary choreographers. So we were very happy to work with Forsyth or with Kilian or with McGregor. And I think we are constantly trying to have these three parts in our repertoire. And of course, Balanchine, we are happy to have Balanchine in our repertoire and Robinson. So, so I, I want to ask about, about the Kirill Serebrenikov ballet. Uh, can, can, I, can, I, can I just, can I add right away? You cannot say Kirill Serebrenikov ballet because Kirill Serebrenikov, he's a designer and he's a stage director, but there is a choreographer. And you cannot really reflect to any ballet nowadays without mentioning the name of choreography. You know, in the time of Pitipa, in the time of Fokin, uh, and even in the early time of Balanchine, there were no copyright for choreographers. So you would say Tchaikovsky ballet, or, I don't know, Glazunov ballet, or Stravinsky ballet. But nowadays, choreographer, he's a core figure for the ballet. So Yuri Posokhov and Kirill Serebrinikov, ballet, Nuriyev. Okay, Nuriev. So, if, <laughs> thank you. Actually, didn't didn't realize that. So, you did mention. So, so that's one of the ballets that is made particularly for the Bolshoi. Of right? course. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's. I mean, just not not everyone I think in the states knows about this, but um, the background for that is that play the ballet rather was going to be put on in the summer, and then. Um, Serebrnikov was arrested for embezzlement charges with a number of other people, part of a, an organization. And then, um, I'm just giving this background for other people, and then the, the ballet was eventually put on in December of 2017, correct? Mm -hmm. I imagine you've had to talk about it a lot, but can you talk about... Can I, can, can I, can I, can I speak about background a bit longer? Sure. So this, the, first, the first thing Kirill Sriabrinikov did for the Bolshoi was an opera, and it was quite successful. And then we had a number of other experiments when stage director would have worked together with a choreographer. And so it was this idea, 
I think of Yuri Posohov that Kirill would work on him on the ballet based on Lermontov's story, The Hero of Our Time. And a special score was written for this by a contemporary composer, Ilya Dimutskin. And it turned out to be very interesting, full evening, three-act ballet, Hero of Our Time. And it was so successful that immediately Mr. Urin suggested our general director to the same team to do another work for the Bolshoi. And so together they came to the idea to do a biopic on the life of Rudolf Nureyev, especially that this year, this year, is uh, his 80th anniversary. And so Ilya set up to Ilya Dimutsky to write up the music and the ballet should appear this season, this year. But then we had uh, some changes in the program because John Neumeyer, who was doing for us Anna Karenina, who's supposed to do it past season, all of a sudden, he said that he needed more time. And so it all was rescheduled. And Dimutsky, Posokhov, and Serebrnikov, they agreed to do Nureyev for the previous season. And they start to work with Bolshoi Company. And Nureyev, it's a huge work. It's like 400 people on stage. So at some time, on the eve of the premiere, all of a sudden, our general director, actually like three days before, he announced to the Bolshoi Ballet Company that he thinks that ballet is not ready. And this ballet cannot be shown now to the audience and need much more, much, I don't know if much more, or rather more time to be rehearsed. That's what he announced for the company, and that's what he announced in his press conference. And so he said the ballet would be postponed. But uh, with the climate in our country, many people were not sure that this ballet will be really postponed or if this ballet will be just taken away from the, you know, repertoire forever, and that we probably will never see the premiere of this ballet. And doesn't matter what our director was saying, people around were making up their own mind, and they were thinking that he did it under the pressure, though he always denied it. But people were thinking that he probably he did it under the pressure from the government or something. And I think it became Mr. Urin's sort of pride to make this ball and to show it on stage as he promised. Mm. And that actually what happened. And so at December, this ballet was shown. But unfortunately, by that time, because when Bale, when he decided not to show this ballet for the artistic reason, as he thought it was not having enough time to be rehearsed in a proper way for the Bolshoi stage, because I'm telling you, it's not only ballet. It's like actors and singers and choir, 400 people on stage. Huge work. So um, so he did all he could, and um, thanks to his effort, basically, this belly came up on stage, but in December. And by that time, unfortunately, Kirill was already arrested, because he got arrested, I guess, in the end of August. Mm -hmm. Kirill was arrested, but um, Urin, Urin, our general director, he thought that main part to be rehearsed was ballet itself, because he thought that Kirill, he made this whole structure, like, Choir knew when they're on stage, and drama actors knew when they're on stage, and figurants knew, but Bali need to simply more time to master everything on stage. But I think everybody put all their efforts, and I think one meeting was granted between Kirill and uh, choreographer, and in the end, we were very proud and happy to have Nureyev on stage. And now it's coming back in the end of June again, three times, and already scheduled next season. And I also hope one day we'll come to the United States. Though it's huge, huge, huge.
<laughs> a lot of a lot of plane tickets. Yeah, yeah, plane tickets and a lot of trucks. But I think thanks to the helps of our board of trustees and to our sponsors and actually even personally to Mr. Abramovich, I think it might happen. So, so at the time that it was originally postponed, like you, you kind of alluded to this, the current like political climate in Russia, um, and specifically like talking about Nureyev, he was gay, and the ballet presumably is is about his life as a gay man, and it's there was speculation at the time. Okay, okay, okay fair but enough. It, yeah, but but that is a component of it, right. and at the time, the the accusations were that the government had pressured the Bolshoi into canceling or or postponing the production because of this reason that's what i'm saying as well yeah 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 and so i i had also read elsewhere and this might be like total gossip so let me know if that's the case that there had been an additional scene in in the production this are uh, gossips nothing was taken away from the final production nothing everything stays it was it was staged everything there there is the speculation because there is the avidon portrait of naked Nuria. Right. Uh, but this portrait was from the very beginning in the production. Uh, it just comes on stage in such a way that, let's say, his masculine organ is in the shadow. Okay. But we don't think that everybody has to see it so huge on Bolshoi stage to understand the meaning of the picture. <laughs> but it was, it was the way, it was the way it was staged. So not, nothing was nothing was changed. The production uh, there was there was no change. I mean, maybe some artistic changes occurred, but nothing occurred through the censorship. No. Uh, do you do you ever find? Because I know, like the Bolshoi is is gets a lot of funding from the state, as do you know artistic institutions all around the world. And I'm curious, as you know, as the press person specifically, but also just as part of the institution, how does the Bolshoi manage kind of that equilibrium between pushing artistic boundaries and also the fact that they are that you do receive, you know, a fair amount of your funding from the state. Is that something that you guys struggle with or has it not really been an issue? You see, I'm head of press, so I don't know exactly. But my previous director, Mr. Iksanov, who ran Bolshoi for 20 years, and my current director, Mr. Uin, who is in Bolshoi for his fifth season, they both denying any pressure from the government, though the government gives like 70% of money we have. So I think, um, I think, once they appointed general director, they sort of trust him in a sense. We, I felt some pressure around opera, Children of Rosenthal. Um, it's a new opera, and we commissioned the score to Leonid Desiatnikov. And the script was written with very popular uh, and famous Russian writer, Mr. Vladimir Sorokin. And at that time, it was like... I don't remember exactly the year, maybe 2005, 2004. It was quite a big pressure that Mr. Sorokin shouldn't be writing anything for the Bolshoi. He's not a proper writer, etc. And it was a big, big pressure, but not from the government, from some people, let's say, around. But Bolshoi management at the time didn't react at all. And we did our premiere and it went smoothly. And then we performed it for several seasons in a row. So I think just people trust to these Bolshoi general managers and they really permit them to stage whatever they want. I know you probably have to repeat yourself a lot, but that's what you do for your job. So. Uh, it's, it's, not a pro- it's, it's not a problem for me. It just, I mean, some people take Russia as a very, let's say, severe country or something like this. And, uh, you know, but I was born in the country in the Soviet Union when my father works as a dramaturg and working as a dramaturg. He had to go 
to and get a special permission to stage any contemporary play from the censorship. You couldn't just put on stage play without getting a permission from special censorship committee, you know. And it doesn't exist any longer. Frankly, it's, it's, it really doesn't exist. If you have money, you can stage whatever you want. <laughs> you don't have this censorship. And some people are complaining, even saying we need to have this artistic union when many people decide what is good, what is bad. But our general director, he don't think it's good. He thinks it's good if he decides himself what is good and what is bad. And I think he has his freedom to do it. Meanwhile, it might change. But meanwhile, I guess he's free in his decision. But, you know, but then you have your inner censorship, right? You think yourself, maybe I shouldn't dare to do right. this or to do this. But, but this is your personal judgment. Right. I want to ask about your personal experience, like being the head of press, being the face of such an important and well-known institution, as you've described, like its significance in, in Russia and in Russian history. Would you be able to share maybe like a particular challenge, a particular time that was really difficult being the head of press for the Bolshoi? Uh, difficult was only once when this horrible attack came to Sergei Filin. And he got this exit in his face. And that was difficult for one thing, because it was a crime. And uh, I don't know how to deal with crime. And none of us knew. Our general director, Mr. Iksanov, also didn't know how to hold it. Because we don't know, really. We don't know how to do it. We, we don't face it. We, we sort of know how to deal with arts. But we don't know how to deal with crimes. And that's why it was difficult, and I still don't know if we acted in a proper way. But we only try to be honest. This is one of the best things that I, th I think you really have to be honest as much as you can. It's very, and actually, in artistic field, you really don't have to lie. And in this situation, I don't know. But I always think that the main thing in your life is trying to be honest. Because lies, I don't know when they help. And I, I don't feel they help so much. Well, especially in my job. Otherwise, my my biggest challenge was when I just came to Bolshoi and it was a discussion that we need the renovation and reconstruction. And um, so Mr. Iksanov said to me, let's do something to prove that we need renovation and reconstruction. And Bolshoi was in a drastic condition. Frankly, it was absolutely horrible. Everything was falling down. We have 13 cracks from top to down of 30 centimeters wide. Our backstage was full of cats and this horrible smell of cats. And oh, my God. It was in this horrible dust, you know, like meters of dust. And so I invited all the major press, like 30 people from all the major paper and television. And we had this big tour backstage because I thought, People see it with their own eyes and they understand and they write their articles. We, we didn't, you know, we didn't push anything. I just invite them and we did this tour. And then what I got as an output, I got 25 articles saying, oh, Bolshoi is a marvelous building. No one should ever touch it. What? It's such a special atmosphere backstage. <laughs> it's such an amazing, incredible building. It has our history. It's a symbol. No one ever dared to touch and come and do something to this building. So, and they pops out all these articles in 25, you know, main papers. And I think in this moment, only good heart of Mr. of our general director, that saved me because every other press secretary would be sucked in a minute I think because it was 100% opposite from what he asked me to do so, <laughs> so I tell to all press secretary think twice you know something you think it's obvious but not to everybody <laughs> yeah 
Wow. Yes, yes. Wow. That was the big challenge. <laughs> That's a really good lesson, actually. Yeah, <laughs> good like... lesson, good lesson. <laughs> um. Okay, so last, I think last question we have for you. I want to talk a little bit about like what the specific characteristics are that define the Bolshoi practice of ballet. Maybe even down to like very specific choreography or, or any other Style. thing that goes schools. into production. Yeah. Schools, yeah. yeah. Right. Why do we speak only about Bo? I just want to say that Bolshoi is also opera. And I think this Bolshoi style, in a sense, applies to both, to opera and to the ballet. And I think the word Bolshoi, if you look, it means Grand Théâtre de Moscou, grand. Because also they had a small theater next door. So this is grand. And I think this word grand defines more or less all our stuff. First of all, our stage is huge. They speak about Nijinsky, who was doing in one jump the whole stage. But the stage he was jumping in one jump, it's a stage of, of Monte Carlo, you know, it's like 11 meters. Bolshoi stage, it's 18 meters or 21. Yeah, it's huge. So it's a huge hour stage. And also, Bolshoi is situated in the biggest city of our country. It's the biggest theater house we have. And why it applies to our style? Because everything we do must be grand. Like our ballet, when you have so many people on stage, or our set design, or costumes in, let's say, this grand style Russian operas, it's heavy, it's big, it's sometimes not so heavy, but used to be heavy, now, now it gets sometimes lighter. But it's always this grand, and you see our ballerinas, you see Svetlana Zakharova, or you saw Maria Alexandrova, or you see now Olga Smirnova, they are grand in their style, you know? Mm. It's, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you have to be big in size, but something grand you should bring with you. That's the episode. A big thanks to Katya, of course. Uh, be sure to go and check out the Bolshoi's website at www.bolshoi.ru. And then, of course... If you don't already know this, even though we've been shoving it down your throats, we have a Patreon now. So if you listen to the show and you like it and you want to support us continuing to do the show and ever increasing the quality, head over to patreon.com slash she's in Russia and you can pledge at any amount you would like. And as always, be sure to follow us on Telegram and Twitter at She's in Russia. Give us a call at plus one three four seven two nine two seven one two six if you want us to answer your question like we did with our lovely lady caller in the beginning. Go to our website. Sounds and... insulting. What? Oh we don't God. like being called ladies. You called her a lady, I think, already. We call each other ladies. That's true. But we don't mean it in the softball way. We mean it in our own way. <laughs> right. Ladies, you're not a softball lady. Don't worry. Uh, Podcast lady. Podcast lady. Yeah. Be sure to go to our website and subscribe to our monthly image based newsletter at she'sinrussia.com. And we will see you next week. Do you you know what a a veil ballerina is called, right? A ballet dancer? No. (sighs) A ballerina. I can't remember. That's weird. I know. I didn't want to say it. Yeah, it is.